This podcast is supported by Evernorth Health Services. Tonight, which candidate benefits when the road to the White House freezes over? We're live in Iowa, where blizzard conditions and sub-zero temperatures threaten to be a decisive factor in Monday's caucuses. Also, a night after U.S. and British airstrikes on Houthi targets in Yemen, a new message from a top Houthi leader as his fighters try to make good on their threat of revenge. And later, CNN's Donnie O'Sullivan in Arizona investigating how even skeptical election officials can face backlash from conspiracy theorists. Good evening. Thanks for joining us. We begin with Iowa. Three days from the caucuses, and the state is being hammered by winter weather. This is video of the capital, Des Moines, where the temperature now is 9 degrees. The wind chill is minus 13, and a blizzard warning is in effect. CNN's Jeff Zeleny is there for us tonight. Jeff, I don't know how we convinced you to actually stand outside. First of all, how is it feeling there and how are the campaigns being impacted tonight and this weekend? Anderson, it's chilly. There's no doubt about it. Uh, the wind is the... Um, is the biggest issue. But look, this is as warm as it's going to be between now and the caucuses. Over the weekend, it's going to increasingly become colder and colder. The snow's not necessarily a big concern. Iowans are used to snow, of course, but it's the dangerously cold temperatures that really are making the the campaigns make backup plans for how to get their supporters to the caucuses on Monday night. The the Excuse me, it's hard to talk out here, too, in the cold. The candidates also are making big changes. We just learned that President Trump, former President Donald Trump, will not be campaigning tomorrow here in Iowa as he planned. He was planning four weekend rallies. He's now only having one on Sunday. It's adjusted all the campaign planning. I don't necessarily, as a Floridian, want to be in negative 20 degree temperatures, but I know we're the campaign that's built to turn out our people in negative Three days before the Iowa caucuses, the closing arguments of the Republican race come with a winter weather warning. Yes, I know it's cold on Monday, but I'm going to be out there. A blizzard and the forecast for a dangerous record-setting cold spell are testing the fortitude of campaign organizations built by Ron DeSantis and Nikki Haley, and even frontrunner Donald Trump, who's been warning his supporters against complacency. Pretend you're one point down, okay? You're one point down! You have to get out and you have to vote, vote, vote! Snow and bitter winds scrambled the plans of candidates today, canceling rallies and speeches designed to build momentum heading into the final weekend. DeSantis dropped by a campaign office. Every phone call, every door, everything we do between now and caucus night is going to make a difference. As Haley held telephone town hall meetings. Please wear layers of clothes just in case they're aligned so that you are staying safe. And please go in there and know that you are setting the tone for the country. Those rivals are locked in a bitter duel to become the leading alternative to Trump. I personally think it's time to move forward. Bill Funk twice voted for Trump. But he spent the last year looking for a new choice. I think that it's time for this country to come together. I think it's time to put a leader in there that can bring us together and move us forward and heal some of the past. We've had too much chaos. His wife Connie is an independent. For much of their 45-year marriage, they've canceled one another's vote. Now they're both supporting Haley. I'm saying my prayers. I, I feel like we have this opportunity to show a different side to what politics can be. And Nikki is the person I feel that can do that. Haley is hoping for a strong turnout in the suburbs. Hi, how's it going? Did you sign up online? I did. You did? Okay, what was your last name? While DeSantis has been working toward broader support in all corners of the state. We're excited about having gone to all 99 counties. Trump is counting on loyal followers, particularly in rural areas, to help build a landslide victory with an organization far stronger and more sophisticated than in 2016. We got to get out in 
vote because, you know, bad things happen when you sit back. Christina Brecky voted for Trump and considered doing so again, but late last year had a change of heart. With the way the country's going right now, I think people are looking for something else. Jeff, is it clear which candidate could most benefit from possibly lower turnout because of the weather on Monday? Anderson, it's hard to know for sure, but one thing is clear, there's not likely to be record-setting turnout, as Republican officials have been uh, projecting and predicting all year. But uh, the former president just sent out a message on social media a short time ago. He says that he's going to benefit because his people are the most committed. That's an open question. When you talk to Republican strategists here who've been doing this for a very long time, a lot of the Trump support is in rural areas. Uh, so that means they have to drive farther into their, their voting uh, site. A lot of Haley supporters, for example, are in the suburbs around here in Des Moines, Iowa City, Cedar Rapids, so they don't have to drive as far. DeSantis, of course, has talked endlessly about his 99-county tour across Iowa. He's counting on broad-based uh, support, so um, he may also have some issues in rural areas. At the end of the day, it's impossible to know which candidate is going to lose the most support, if any, but older voters are one question uh, here. It is going to be incredibly cold on Monday night, a wind chill potentially of 45 degrees below Low zero. So, of course, that will impact some older voters. Uh, you know, uh, cars may not be able to start, et cetera. So we'll have to see on Monday night. But for now, at least, uh, Haley and DeSantis back on the campaign trail uh, tomorrow and Trump not coming back until Sunday. And again, it is cold out here, as you can hear me trying to talk. <laughs> Jeff Anderson. Yeah, get inside. Thank you, Jeff. I appreciate it. For a better idea of what candidates and caucus goers alike can expect on Monday and this weekend leading up to it, Let's go to the CNN Weather Center, meteorologist Chad Myers. Chad, what is the latest? Six to eight inches of new snow today, Anderson, over Iowa, and now it is blowing around, blowing from the north across those east-west roads. Roads are being shut, especially the rural roads that he was just talking about. And this wind is going to continue all the way through the weekend and into next week. Right now, the wind chill in Des Moines is only 11 degrees below zero. And like you said, this is about as warm as it's going to get. It gets colder from here. Blizzard warnings are in effect. The winds are blowing 30 to 40 miles per hour right now and blowing that snow across the roadways and shutting some of those roads themselves. Now, the storm moves to the east tomorrow and the winds die off from 40 to 30. But that 30 and 20 miles per hour will last all the way through Monday into Tuesday. Still blowing that snow around, still making very cold air as it comes into Monday night into Tuesday, it will be cold. And I have more on that if you want. Let me tell you, you might not want to hear it. Yeah, the coldest, how 2004, cold? 2004 was the coldest so far. 16 degrees was the high. We're not going to get above zero. And in fact, the wind chills will be closer to minus 40. There's your air temperature in Des Moines. The thermometer is going to say nine below zero. And when you add in the wind that's still blowing, your wind chill is going to be 28 below. Now, I grew up in Nebraska, right? And when you're in Nebraska and the wind chill's blowing 30 and you have a farm, you're trying to keep your livestock alive. You have bigger issues to worry about than to drive to town and go vote. So we'll have to see how that might affect that rural vote. Chad Myers, appreciate it. Thank you. I want to get some perspective now from someone who's been there before, literally, namely in that cold, cold 2004 race, former Vermont governor and DNC chair Howard Dean, who ran for the Democratic nomination that year and for a time electrified the race and made it must-see politics. Also with us in Iowa, pollster and communication strategist Frank Luntz. Governor Dean, I mean, you just saw that live report from Iowa. Voters could be headed for the coldest caucuses ever, to say nothing, the blizzard impact. How I and mean, what kind of an impact do you think it's going to have? 
It does. It definitely has an impact. I mean, everybody talks about the famous scream speech at the end of the Iowa caucus, but the, I was I lost Iowa and I was supposed to win. And I think one of the reasons I lost <clears throat> was because we weren't able to do the kind of organizing we needed to do and get people out. I thought the comment that older people might not go out from Jeff uh, Zeleny uh, because they had other things to do. That's a huge deal. This is this weather is much worse than it was in, in uh, 2004. So I, I I, I think it's going to be a real problem, and I, I sense a real Haley surge, and I think that would actually be good for the country. I don't support her, of course. I think Biden has a much better record than he gets credit for, but I think I, that couple who said they were going to vote for Nikki Haley, I think that's a real sign of hope, and I think Haley can win this. Frank, if the cold weather does end up suppressing turnout, I mean, who do you think benefits? I think it, I'm going to the other side. I think it hurts Vivek Ramaswamy because he's, his votes are primarily 18 to 29. And I think that it hurts Donald Trump because he has such a significant percentage of his vote is 75 and older. And in the end, this is not, as the governor said, this is not even 2004. This is temperatures that even Iowans will find uncomfortable. Hmm. So, Governor Dini, it's interesting. You're saying this could be, you could see Haley actually winning in Iowa. If that happened... I mean, that would really that, that would be a big deal. I mean, not only for the well, yeah, because she's going to win in New Hampshire. DeSantis. Haley's going to win in New Hampshire if she beats DeSantis in Iowa, even if she doesn't beat Trump, uh, that'll be the end of DeSantis's campaign. Then it's a two person race. Uh, so I, I think this is a fascinating race and I think it's much closer than people think. And I, you know, I'm here watching all the ads and uh, that, you know, because you got to buy Vermont television to get all of New Hampshire. It is really stunning what's going on. Uh, and I think Haley is surging in New Hampshire. And, you know, Iowa is going to be a big deal because if she happens to win or even come close to Trump in Iowa, this is a brand new race. And if you're, you're saying if you, if Haley beats DeSantis in Iowa, you think it's over governor for uh, for DeSantis? I think it, it is because she's certainly going to beat him in New Hampshire. And that's two states in a row. When you're a newcomer, that's tough. Frank, as you well know, former president lost Iowa 2016 to Ted Cruz, though he tweeted afterward, uh, kind of a harbinger of things to come. He tweeted, based on the fraud committed by Senator Ted Cruz during the Iowa caucus, either a new election should take place or Cruz results nullified. How well does he have to do, you think, this time to meet or exceed expectations? He's got to get over 50 percent. That's been the excuse that Trump has used not to participate in debates, not to engage the other candidates, in fact, to try to force the other candidates out of the race, he would say, I'm getting a majority of the vote. So he has to deliver that. I do not believe that Nikki Haley is going to come even close to him because his lead is that significant. However, I do agree with the governor that she is moving. That And, and there's the law of physics in caucuses and primaries that particularly true, which is things in motion tend to stay in motion. If she's gaining two, three, four percent a week, it is likely that she will outperform her polling data on election day. And DeSantis has now dropped into single digits in New Hampshire. Please remember uh, the, the phrase that people sometimes use. Iowa makes a statement. New Hampshire makes a difference. Governor Dean, do you expect Chris Christie dropping out of the race to make a big, significant difference. I mean, obviously, uh, to a recent, according to CNN, a recent CNN poll, the majority of his supporters in New Hampshire said Nikki Haley was their second choice. 
Right. I don't think it'll make any difference in, in uh, Iowa. He didn't show up in Iowa, but I think it's going to make a significant difference. I really do believe that Haley might come, might win in New Hampshire. I know I respect Frank's long history of accurate polling, but I, I, I can just feel the momentum. And I've been in this game. It is uh, it is amazing what's happening in New Hampshire. Hmm. Frank, under do you, I mean, is there any scenario that you could see Donald Trump not being the Republican nominee, Frank, in November? Uh, I would have said to you as recently as maybe 10 days ago that I did not see that he's been so strong. His appearances, his town halls, the money that he's raised, that his numbers is getting stronger and stronger, even with everything against him, the indictments, the accusations, the, uh, the challenges to his leadership. However, she has been so strong over the last two weeks that you now have to say, never say never. And for her, if she can win in New Hampshire and do reasonably well in her home state of South Carolina, which comes next, then it's a brand new ballgame. Frank Clunt, Howard Dean, appreciate it. Thank you. Interesting. Thank you. Next, a live update on the backlash after American and British strikes on Yemen. That and what the Houthi militants who control the country might do next. Also, later tonight, the Arizona election official found out that even election skepticism isn't enough in a conspiracy-fueled political world. All There Is with Anderson Cooper is supported by Evernorth Health Services. Grief is a human experience. Shouldn't the care we receive feel human too? That's why Evernorth Behavioral Health ensures all members have access to live, specialized support anytime, in person or virtually, with a 100% follow-up commitment to make sure that they get the help that they need. So no matter what stage of grief your employees may be in, there's always a person ready to listen. Stressful times can lead many to bottle up complex feelings, especially at work. 59% of those suffering say nothing. This can have unexpected and serious mental and physical health implications. And with Evernorth's data-driven risk monitoring tools, they can help spot challenges early and step in to guide individuals to care before they undergo any more suffering. Each person's grief is as unique as they are which is why Evernorth offers a wide range of personalized behavioral solutions to meet the needs of every member that they serve. Learn more at evernorth.com slash grief support. It's breaking news. A new round of airstrikes on Iranian-backed Houthi targets in Yemen a day after American and allied forces hit dozens of locations there. CNN's Orton Lieberman is at the Pentagon for us tonight. So what's happened? Anderson, a second night of U.S. strikes in Yemen. We've learned from a U.S. official that the U.S. carried out another set of strikes. These much smaller than what we saw yesterday, where we saw the U.S. target 28 different Houthi sites. This specifically targets a radar facility, according to the U.S. official, used by the Houthis. Also worth noting that last night's strikes were effectively a coalition. The U.S. and the U.K. carried out the strikes themselves, but they were backed by Canada, the Netherlands, Australia, and Bahrain. This is the U.S. acting unilaterally. Now, it has to be noted that after the U.S. strikes and the warning, the repeated warnings, I should say, put forward by the U.S., the Houthis launched another anti-ship ballistic missile, this one not into the Red Sea, but south into the Gulf of Aden. So what's unclear at this point is if this specific and much smaller strike is either a response to that ballistic missile, a warning to the U.S. that, that for, every, uh, for every launch against commercial vessels, there will be a U.S. response, 
or if following yesterday's strikes, the US had the opportunity to do a battle damage assessment and saw that there was a target that hadn't been destroyed. Perhaps that will become clear here as we learn more about the strikes. But it is worth noting also that the US said they weren't interested in an escalation. Still, a second night of strikes carried out against Houthi targets. The Houthis have vowed to respond, and that's still very much what we're looking for. How do they respond? In what direction? Is it against U.S. assets in the Red Sea, or do they look at U.S. bases uh, elsewhere in the Middle East? Those are still very much open questions here, uh, as we see another strike here, or set of strikes, by the U.S. against Houthi targets in Yemen. Ern, how much is known about uh, how many viable targets are there actually in Yemen for U.S. forces or any kind of coalition forces to actually target? I mean, do we know much about the the, the military capabilities of, of the Houthis? The Houthis are one of the strongest non-state actors in the Middle East, potentially one of the strongest non-state actors in the world, sort of like a Hezbollah in Lebanon. That's not the Lebanese government, but they are incredibly powerful. The Houthis are not the internationally recognized government of Yemen, and yet they are very powerful. The U.S. tried to tailor today's strikes and yesterday's strikes to go after the sorts of weapons that they use to target... Um, shipping in, in the Red Sea and in the Gulf of Aden. So it was, it was directed at that. This was not an attempt to go after Houthi leadership or other Houthi facilities. So there are certainly targets left. And I'll answer it from another perspective as well. The Saudis waged a years-long battle uh, with the Houthis. So there certainly is a vast amount of capabilities that the Houthis have. The U.S. not trying to go after all of it, but trying to go after what they use to target international shipping. Yeah, uh, talking about yesterday's strikes, Ron Lieberman, thanks very much. I want to go to CNN's Nick Robertson, monitoring developments uh, for us from Tel Aviv. Uh, Nick, uh, what do you make of these latest strikes and, and what the Houthi capabilities are? Yeah, I think that what we saw the Houthis do today, but which was by striking a ship in the Gulf of Aden, uh, look, all the coalition forces are there in the Red Sea, come, you know, go south out of the Red Sea, past Yemen, hang a left, and you're in the Gulf of, Gulf of Aden there, off the southern coast of Yemen. And that's where they struck today. Perhaps no surprise, because the focus of a lot of the, the, the U.S. and British airstrikes last night had been more focused down the west side of Yemen, more close to the Red Sea. So this, I think, shows the potential adaptability of the Houthis. They've got a lot of the other options, or at least a number of other options for launching missiles. We've taken them out, or they've been taken out in one area of Yemen, but they're still able there to threaten um, into the Gulf of Aden. So I think that's one point. And I think it's also instructive and the United States and military planners at the Pentagon will be very aware of this because for many years, eight years, they were helping Saudi Arabia with intelligence and at one time even refuel aircraft for the Saudi fighter jets to target the Houthis um, when the Saudis uh, were, were trying to support the internationally recognized government in Yemen and fight the Houthis on the ground. And all those years of airstrikes and all the criticism that Saudi came under for all the killings of civilians, even during all of that, the Houthis managed to maintain the ability to fire complex, sophisticated cruise missiles hundreds and hundreds of miles all the way to the capital of Saudi Arabia. So I think what's instructive about how the Houthis have handled airstrikes before is that they have found a way to dodge and evade and still come back and attack. And that's what we saw them do in a limited way today. Um, and I think that's what they're going to try and follow through with going forward. So I wouldn't be surprised if this follow-up 
uh, these follow-up strikes today by the United States are not the end of it, certainly from the Houthi perspective and everything they've been saying is they are going to come back and continue the fight. Nick Robertson, thanks. I want to check in with Orrin again. Orrin, do we know how effective the U.S. thinks the strikes were yesterday? We know the U.S. believes they conducted significant damage against the targets they were going for, that is, radar sites, command and control nodes, and then storage and launch facilities for, for drones, anti-ship ballistic missiles, and anti-ship cruise missiles. But as of earlier today, we got a briefing from a senior Pentagon official who said they haven't completed the battle damage assessment, so there isn't a definitive, here's the list of what we hit, here's the list of what we hit but weren't able to destroy, at least not as far as we know. So the U.S. may still be going through that process, and that likely factored into this decision to carry out another strike after yesterday's far more expansive strikes, and certainly to carry this strike out unilaterally instead of relying or using that broad coalition that we saw yesterday. So we'll still wait for more information about the effectiveness of the strikes. One of the questions we had asked is, Look, the, the strikes yesterday leaked pretty early from the UK. Did that, did that affect the efficacy of what you were able to do? Did it make it less effective? Were the Houthis able to move any of their assets? That could certainly play into this. We didn't get a definitive answer on that question, but it was telegraphed quite blatantly that these attacks were coming. And certainly you can see a scenario where that gives the targets a, a heads up to move. And that, that may be at play here. We'll have to wait to get a better sense of that. Orrin Lieberman, thanks very much. I want to turn next to Sina's Fried Zakaria, host of Fried Zakaria GPS and retired uh, NATO Supreme Allied Commander General Wesley Clark. General Clark, what's your reaction to these news strikes? Well, I'm glad um, that we followed up. I think we are still doing BDA. Um, we've got to do a better job of targeting. And the way you do it is you strike, you put the eyes and ears back on the area, you watch the reaction. Uh, you look at it carefully and you build your target packages. But in every case, uh, I would hope that we would try to achieve escalation dominance over the Houthis. If they fire one missile, we take out three targets. If they fire three missiles, we take out six targets. In other words, we try to stay away from a tit for tat. And ultimately, if we can't take out the, the assets they're using to strike these ships, then we've got to go to find assets they value more highly. Freed, what did these strikes, both last night and, and this latest round, what do you think it means for the prospects of, of a wider conflict in the region? Oh, it definitely increases the prospects, and it has always been true that this is a conflict that is always turned into something larger. And the reason is... Uh, Iran has many allies, and most of its allies are like the Houthis. These are proxy fighters, Hezbollah, uh, uh, the Houthis, uh, Hamas, of course. Uh, and what the Houthis have done is they have found a way to inflict a cost on, you know, business as usual. So the United States has to respond, and it has to try to achieve escalation dominance, uh, as Wes Clark was saying. But it has to also try not to let this spread out of control. And that's a very delicate balance. And it's trying to reestablish deterrence uh, while at the same time not itself produce a widening of the war. Uh, I, I'm not sure this, there's a lot of danger here because the United States could get drawn into precisely the thing that Washington was telling Saudi Arabia to be careful of, which is if you drag yourself into 
uh, a, you know, a Yemeni civil war, siding with one side, attacking the Houthis, uh, that could go on for a long time. So there's that danger. On the, on the other hand, you've got to make sure that uh, the shipping can go through the Persian Gulf. This is the lifeline of much of the world. This is where oil flows to lots of places all over the world. And Farid, just, I mean, assuming the Houthis are rational actors, what is, what's in this for them? I mean, obviously they are saying this is about the, the Israel's war against uh, Hamas, or the, what's going on in, in Gaza. Um, is it simply that? Or are they doing the, the, the bidding of, of Iran? Why would they be doing this? Yeah, I think you have to view this in a broader strategic context, which is uh, Iran has been trying to essentially assert that the American-led Middle Eastern order is not viable, uh, that it that it uh, you know that it contains Iran, it presses Iran. Uh, Iran has been it's sort of put into a box. Uh, it can, you know it's it's under sanctions. So the Iranians have been trying. President Raisi, in an interview with me, said. You know, you you will not be able to do this. We we have ways of opposing the American-led Middle Eastern order, and the whole idea that Saudi Arabia and Israel were going to make a happy peace—that is what Iran is trying to prevent. It it is helping Hamas, it is helping Hezbollah, it is helping the Houthis. So, in that sense, the Houthis are part of this larger strategy. I I don't think they, in a particular sense, gain something. It's a, a very good question. Anderson, because it's difficult to see what the Houthis are gaining from this. But if you think of it as the Houthis, the the uh, Hezbollah, Assad, Iran, this larger group of forces in the Middle East that are all opposed to an American-led uh, strategic stability in the Middle East. That's, you know, that's the big contest. So, General Clark, uh, given what Fareed just said about the larger contest context of this, you know, there were reports the Houthis fired a ballistic missile at a, at a ship today, but missed. Under this scenario, do you expect more of that, more attempts at retaliation, staying in, the, in, in this, trying to keep this game going? Well, I expect them to continue to do this because Iran wants them to do it. As Fareed said, this is, a, this is a, a, a Iran's a quest for regional hegemony. And this is why you can't pay too much attention to what you hear from the Arab street. Uh, they're manipulated by uh, by uh, various uh, social media, but the leaders in Saudi Arabia, the Emirates, Kuwait, Qatar, they know what the stakes are. They want America there. Even in Iraq, they want us there. So they're looking at the United States for strength and for leadership. So when we strike back, they like it, no matter what the protests say about it and, and all that. And and also no matter you know what we say about not wanting to escalate, they want escalation. Our friends in the region, they want to see a strong America. Now, they want to see us effective. So we have to really, we're, now we're engaged with military force. We better really do that targeting well. And we better not, not try to tit for tat it. So we've got to try to cap this off. The alternative is we go closer to the source. Iran's playing a very cagey game. They do not want the United States or Israel to strike their nuclear facilities. They, they may be very close to a nuclear weapon. They're asking themselves, uh, when they should they get it? Should they declare it? Should they test it? What will be the consequences? 
they're, 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 they're very sly and clever dancers around this nuclear issue. And in the meantime, they're trying to discredit the United States. And yeah. we're looking at it and saying, can we stop this without going to the source? Well, Fareed, the, the role of Saudi Arabia in all this is fascinating. I mean, their, their response, A, to this latest round, uh, but also their war against the, the Houthis. I mean, they bombed extensively a lot of uh, civilian uh, casualties, fatalities. Um, they came under a lot of criticism for it. W- what do you make of Saudi Arabia's role in all this? Uh, you, well, you... you, you Put your finger on it. The Saudis waged a multi-year, uh, very expensive war, a lot of bombing. Uh, and what they found was that the Houthis were extraordinarily resilient, uh, that they could bounce back, that it was very hard to destroy them completely. Uh, eventually, the UAE, which was Saudi's uh, uh, allies, pulled out because Essentially, they they thought it was an unwinnable war. So that's why I say this is a delicate balance. Uh, Wes is right. You want to achieve some kind of escalation dominance or reestablish deterrence, but you do not want to get sucked into this because all the Houthis have to do is survive. Uh, you know, it's the classic problem of that this kind of warfare. They they win by not losing. We lose by not winning, mm. uh, and that's a. Dy- where that's a you know that's a that's a tough trade-off. So establish escalation elements, show them that they can't do uh, this kind of you know reckless uh, attacks on on ships. Uh, West makes a very interesting point: is there some way to convey a signal to the Iranians? I'm not sure that I would be in favor of military strikes at this point, but uh, in some way indicate like th- this is crossing lines that you haven't crossed before. Because otherwise, this could this could really spell out of control. Fareed Zakaria, General Clark, thank you. We will, of course, continue to monitor the story, bring you any developments as they come in tonight. Coming up, an election official in Arizona finds out the hard way that once believing in election conspiracy theories just isn't enough for some extremists. Details next. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. So there have been arrests, suspensions, disciplinary hearings. They're shutting down graduation events. At this moment, the part of the protests that are admirable are young people calling attention to atrocities. Michael Roth is the president of Wesleyan University. I would like to make a space for them to do that, as long as that space doesn't prevent other people from pursuing their education. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. Last month, we brought you a report about the rising number of profanity-laden death threats left on voicemails for public officials, messages that threatened lynchings and other forms of violence. There are just a few examples of an increasingly toxic environment facing officials around the country, as well as election workers. Well, tonight, Donio Sullivan reports on what happened to one Arizona County election official who once believed the Magaland election conspiracy theories, but then discovered he wasn't extreme enough. You should be in jail, you should be killed, you should be fired, to just people screaming into the phone. I mean, just ridiculous, and 24-7. Lisa Mara was director of elections in Arizona's Cochise County for six years. We actually had to hire an armed security company because the people that worked in the office processing ballots were afraid somebody was going to come break the door down and take ballots. Lisa, a lifelong Republican, had enough of the intimidation and threats, and last year she quit. Your successor is a man named... Bob Bartlesmeyer. 
This is Bob Bartelsmeyer. The election itself just didn't seem like it had been in the past elections. There was just something off. Back in 2020, he shared these Facebook posts falsely claiming Trump legally won by a landslide. Sometimes it's hard for me to accept that there wasn't some errors made mm -hmm. in the election. But I'm not sure that it was to the extent that it, it would have changed the election. For some of the election conspiracy theorists who forced Lisa out of her job in Cochise County, Bob's doubts about the 2020 election made him an ideal candidate to replace her. To maybe some of the people in Cochise, what your critics were saying, this is an election skeptic, he's mm -hmm. an election extremist, a conspiracy mm -hmm. theorist. Denier. Denier. Mm -hmm. While some people would have viewed that as a disqualification. Correct. There's people in Cochise who are probably saying, this is our guy. Correct. He knows what's up. Mm -hmm. He knows the election's been stolen. Mm -hmm. So when you got there, some people were probably happy to see you coming. Yes. But then something happened that he never expected. You weren't extreme enough. No. They found out from the beginning that I was going to follow the laws and procedures. And they weren't happy about that? Some were not. Your actions, sir, are not that of a conservative. And Mr. Bartelsmeyer, if I had the authority, I'd fire you. At public meetings in Cochise County, some voters who believe conspiracy theories about the election decided Bob was not MAGA enough and began demanding he overhaul the entire voting system. To do away with the machines, do away with mail ballots. Those are things that have to be changed legislatively and it's not permissible legally for me to do away with all this stuff. I'm sure even you brain dead rhinos and Democrats can understand. We the people don't want any machines or mail-in ballots. After just four months, Bob quit. At my age, I don't need that. I need less drama. You want some more? Jerry Roll, a former Trump supporter, also left her election job in another Arizona county last year. I've never been treated so poorly, so disrespected. So much of the vitriol directed at election workers like Bob, Lisa and Jerry is fueled by false beliefs about voting machines, about ballots and about election workers themselves. I had a guy tell me that he could hack into our election equipment through the uh, power outlet. What people believe. Nonsensical. It never has been like this before. I, and it's not stupidity and they really don't care about truth or integrity. They just want their outcome. I think that's it. Jerry has spent most of her life working in the court system as a county attorney, but she says the abuse she received as an election worker topped it all. I have been treated better by murderers, child molesters, thieves, rapists, than the political parties and the, the elected representatives. Harassment is one of the main reasons election officials across the country have called it quits. Across 11 western states, more than 160 top local election officials have left their positions since November 2020. We're asking a lot of our elections workers to deal with not only the general misinformation out there, but directly people being attacked. Republican Bill Gates is on the board of supervisors for Arizona's largest county. How concerned are you by the fact that there are election conspiracy theorists now becoming 
election officials. I'm very concerned uh, about that. We're seeing that in some small counties. We are only as strong as our weakest link. It's very sad because we need experienced election workers. Fortunately for Bob Bartelsmeyer, he returned to his old election job in a different Arizona county where he says he is no longer being harassed. As for the election conspiracy theories he shared in 2020. Do you regret sharing those Facebook posts? Yes. The 2020 chapter should be closed and we should move forward. We have to believe the process of the certifications in each state of the secretaries of state. So you think voters should trust the 2024 election? Yes. Even if Trump loses? Yes. He, he says he hopes people will accept the result. Did he actually say if he believes they will accept the result? Well, I think he's kind of nervous a bit like all of us, right? I mean, he actually did say he thinks this year is going to be a bad year for the nation. It's going to be hostile, very brutal. Um, look, I mean, I think to give some credit to, to Bob Bartelsmeyer there, he has these doubts personally still about the 2020 election. Uh, He is an election official, but as you saw in that piece there, he did the right thing, right? He he didn't give in to the extremists and the conspiracy theorists and do things as an election official that one would have been illegal, but two could have actually damaged the safety and integrity and security uh, of elections there. But what's really, I think, fascinating about Bob Bartelsmeyer is, you know, he has another election job now in Arizona. He said his politics aren't going to come into it. And, Mm -hmm. you know, he said there we should trust the process, uh, but he does have those lingering doubts about 2020, and he can't, couldn't necessarily articulate why, but there is that doubt there. He was pushing out different things about vote counts and things like that, but, you know, still somebody really grappling with that, and I do encourage viewers to, to go on to CNN.com. Uh, my colleagues Rob Kuznia and Scott Bronstein have an article that d- dives in a lot deeper to just how misinformation, perhaps, has influenced how this person uh, views the integrity of American elections. Yeah, it's fascinating to hear from Adonia Sullivan. Thanks, Thanks so much. Appreciate it. Next, allegations of an affair between Fulton County DA Fonnie Willis and the man she picked as the lead prosecutor in the Georgia election subversion case against the former president. Accusations the lead prosecutor spent money that he made on the case to take her on lavish vacations. And now the judge in the case has set a hearing on it all. Details ahead. Today, the judge in the Georgia election subversion case against the former president set a February hearing to discuss allegations of an improper relationship between Fulton County DA Fonnie Willis and her pick for lead prosecutor, a man named Nathan Wade. Now, Mr. Trump's attorney brought up the topic today, and Mr. Wade was in court as it was discussed. Earlier this week, in a court filing aimed at getting his case dismissed, a Trump co-defendant alleged that Wade and Willis were having an affair. as Nick Valencia has more on all of this tonight. Good afternoon, Judge. When Nathan Wade was selected by Fonnie Willis as a special prosecutor in Georgia, many lawyers in Cobb County, where Wade practiced law, wondered why him. Not only did Willis have the biggest staff of any judicial circuit in Georgia to choose from, but she also had more experienced felony prosecutors to take on the former president and his allies. Former U.S. attorney and one-time federal prosecutor Michael Moore says if the allegations of an improper romantic relationship between Willis and Wade are true, it's an unforced error by Willis and challenges the integrity of the case. Cases are not lost um, because of some Matlock moment, some moment like you see in my cousin video where suddenly somebody finds the evidence. Cases die by the death of a thousand cuts. This is a cut on the case. I was pretty shocked. I was pretty appalled. 
Criminal defense attorney Scott Grubman faced off against Wade while representing one-time Trump co-defendant Ken Chesborough. What stood out for Grubman is not the alleged romance between Wade and Willis that's shocking. It's the exhibit in the filing which showed some of Wade's billable hours. So far, Wade has earned more than $650,000 for his work on the case. He's doing things like billing 24 hours in a day. Why is that weird? Well, look, attorneys work hard, and technically it is possible to bill 24 hours in a day, of course. I have never met an attorney ever, and I don't think anyone I know has ever met an attorney who has billed 24 hours in a day. And this 24 hours in a day isn't being billed to a private client. It's being billed to the taxpayers of Fulton County. No doubt the 127-page legal filing from Trump co-defendant and former campaign official Michael Roman has been fodder for gossip, but noticeably missing was any direct evidence of an improper relationship. Bad optics is something Willis has already been reprimanded for once when she held a political fundraiser for a political rival of one of the case's co-defendants. I don't know that it's an actual conflict. It's a what-are-you-thinking moment. Um, if the optics are horrific. Persecution, not prosecution, is a theme the former president has tried to get to stick in all of his cases. This is a political witch hunt. After allegations of the Willis-Wade romance surfaced, Trump again seized at the chance to appeal himself as the victim of a witch hunt. And wonderful defense attorneys, and there are a lot of them that are left in this case, I could absolutely guarantee you they're going to avail themselves of that. I'd tell her to get out of the case. Um, I, I really think that the, this type of case, with this allega these allegations, um, this, this case is bigger than any one prosecutor. And I think probably to preserve the case and to show that what's of most importance to her is the facts of the Trump case as opposed to her uh, political career, if you will, at, the t at this moment. If the world wasn't already watching Fonnie Willis's every move, they likely are now. Everyone that we've spoken to in the legal community says if these allegations are true, the optics are just horrible. When Fannie Willis leveled this indictment against the former president, the expectation of those around her, Anderson, would be uh, was that she would be flawless in her prosecution, or at the very least, not make unforced errors like this if they are true. Anderson, Nick Valencia, thanks very much. We'll continue to follow that. At the start of the the NFL football uh, football season, excuse me, Harry Anton was here to take me through all the preseason hype, which I don't really know much about. We're on the eve of the playoffs now, and since I don't really know much about it. I thought it would bring Harry back to explain just what I'm missing. I'm hoping Taylor Swift is somehow involved. We'll be right back in a moment. That massive winter storm hitting the Iowa caucuses is also playing havoc with this weekend's NFL playoffs. Possible blizzard conditions in Buffalo and below zero temperatures in Kansas City. Here with an NFL playoff preview, our senior data reporter, Harry Anton. It's news to me that there were playoffs. Hey, who knew? I didn't know. Who, who knew? Yeah. You know, but because... Backed by popular demand, we have to ask you some questions. Oh, you have questions for me? Of okay, course, great. I have questions about, for you. About the teams playing. About the teams who are playing. Okay. You know this. Yeah. So let's start off with uh, one of the matchups right here. We have the logos for the teams. Who are these teams? Um, one of them are the, uh, the Buffalo Bills. No, no. I could see the red and the blue. That's yeah, kind of there, yeah. right? That's the New England Patriots? No, they're not anywhere close. They stay. The, the Fighting Toros? The Fighting Toros. How yeah, about, okay. that is the uh, Houston Texans on your oh, right. Okay. Um, on the left, um, 
I assume it's not Princeton. It's not Princeton. Um, it's not. They do not play professionally. Uh, uh-huh. Neither of us went to Princeton, though we were uh-huh. Ivy League men. Uh, it's actually the Cleveland Browns who, interestingly uh-huh. enough, have an orange oh. helmet. Well, that's that throws me off. But, you know, they're complementary to each other. Okay, we have another one. Maybe you can get okay. this one. We have, there we go. Oh, same one. That's the that same one. That looks the same to me. Let's move up. There we go. With the L.A. Um, uh, uh, Rockets. LA Rockets, close. It's Galaxy. It's the, no, that's soccer. Uh, How about the LA Rams? Okay, the LA Rams and the Blue Lions. Ooh, they are Lions. They are Lions. Detroit Lions. Yes! I feel like we're making great progress here. I I was in Wisconsin this weekend at the airport and uh, I I didn't have a hat, so I bought a hat. Turned out to be a sports hat. Mm. And it was some team Mm. that I guess was playing another team. And then I was in Chicago and everybody, and the whole reason I'm wearing the hat was so that you know, I, I cut down on interactions and <laughs> the hat made all these people come up to me like, oh, you, we don't have you people here. The sport, the supporters of that team. I wonder if it is on our exhausting. logo in number three. Let's see if we have a third logo. Yes, that's the hat I bought this weekend. It had a G on it. Who do they, what does that mean? Green Bay Packers. Oh, okay. I don't know what that means. What about the uh, other team there? The, the Cowboys. Yes. Yeah, yeah. The Packers okay. versus the yeah, Cowboys. Yeah. So I had that hat, and everyone was like, oh, the, making inside jokes, and I, I didn't know how to respond. If you learn nothing else from me during all our appearances, do not wear a Green Bay Packer hat in Chicago. My, my lesson is do not buy a sport-related hat. Unless I give it to you. Well, no, I just don't know who the, the characters are. Or, I, I, I will yeah. explain the characters, <laughs> okay. the wonderful characters. Yeah. Um, you know, there's another game going on this weekend. I did not. So who? what's happening with the playoffs? Who's, yeah. who's going to win? Yeah, so I, here's a big one for you. Perhaps the Kansas City Chiefs will win. They are, of course, playing the Miami Dolphins, and it's going to be freaking freezing. Who's there. doing the halftime show? There is no halftime show for the wild card round. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. We'll bring it back for you. You have to wait for the Super Bowl? You have to wait for the Super Bowl. You have to wait for the Super Bowl. Is Taylor Swift going to a Well, game? actually, this is a big thing. Uh-huh. Let's flip forward to this slide, guys. Let's ask you the question— of who does Taylor Swift date? We're going to get to this. We'll, we'll get to the coldest games in a second. Who does Taylor Swift date? Oh, I know. There's Travis Kelsey. Very good. Oh, yeah. I, I, I tried to throw you off. With I thought you were going to put his brother on because doesn't his brother play a sport as Very well? good. J- yeah. Jason Kelsey also okay. plays. Yeah, yeah. Oh, and let me just say we have to wrap, but go Bills. Go Bills. There we go. That's oh, a blue hat. There we go. Oh, okay. There we go. All right. All right. Bills. Jason, thanks very much. Thank you. We'll be right back. You wear it well. That's it for us. Have a great weekend. The news continues. The Source with Caitlin Collins starts now. Grief is a human experience, and the care we receive should be too. Evernorth Behavioral Health ensures all members have access to live, specialized support in person or virtually with a 100% follow-up commitment to make sure they get the help they need. There's always a person there, guiding your employees using data-driven risk monitoring tools so bottled-up feelings don't turn into further suffering. With Evernorth's wide range of behavioral solutions, care can be personalized, simple, and more accessible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash grief support. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.